Amen. Thank you to Sam and the rest of the music team for leading us in worship through song. To sing that our God is a wonderful, merciful Savior, a precious Redeemer and friend. That is such an appropriate song. As we dive back into the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, we will be studying verses 13 through 17 this morning. And as we dive into this text, I was reminded in studying it of a story from 19th century England of a very poor woman who attended a church's women's meeting. She had been living with a man who was not her husband. Uh, She had had a child out of wedlock with him. And she brought that child with her to the meeting at church. And she loved the meeting so much she kept coming back again and again. But one day the pastor came to her and said, I must ask you not to come to this meeting again. Seeing her questioning look, he continued, the other women here say that they will stop coming if you continue to come. And looking at him with poignant sorrow, she asked, Sir, I know that I am a sinner, but isn't there anywhere that a sinner can go? Where can sinners go to find love, to find care, to find transformation? Where can sinners go? Who will love them? Who will care for them? And who will enable their transformation and bring it about? The answer to that question is only someone who is filled with grace overflowing. Only someone who is a friend of sinners. And this morning we will see from this text three aspects of amazing grace found in the person and work of Jesus that will enable our own transformation and lead, Lord willing, to be an agent of grace to those around us. Mark chapter 2, verse 13, Mark writes, Jesus went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. These are the very words of God. 
Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this beautiful picture of our Savior. God, give us tender hearts to receive exactly what it is for us to receive that you have for us this morning from these precious verses. As we stare at Jesus, I pray that we would be undone. As we see his grace, I pray that we would be absolutely decimated, humiliated, and then built up in mercy and in love. God, I pray that we would see the kindness of Jesus, our Savior, the friendship that he offers to us because of the gospel. And I pray that we in turn would be those who would offer that kind of love and grace and kindness to all who are around us. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you in your grace and in your kindness and in your power would open our eyes right now to behold wonderful things from your law. We need your help. We need divine assistance. We need divine illumination. We do not want to be the Pharisees. And yet we willingly admit, readily admit that we are so much like them. So God, we ask that you would grant grace. Teach us this morning and point us to Jesus, the friend of sinners. We pray in his name. Amen. These verses give us three amazing aspects of God's grace towards sinners. And I just want to go through them one by one and stare at Jesus and be transformed by him. So the first aspect of God's grace is number one, God's grace calls sinful failures to follow him. God's grace calls sinful failures to follow him. This is verses 13 and 14. Jesus uh, goes out by the seashore. This is after uh, healing the paralytic and letting that paralytic walk out that we saw last Lord's Day. He is in Capernaum. He's teaching. That is why he came, not to do miracles, but to teach. And even the miracles are to validate the things that he is claiming about himself. And so he is teaching. All the people are coming around him. He's teaching them. He's gathering a crowd. And in the midst of this crowd, in the midst of all of these people that he is teaching, he passes by one person in particular and stops what he's doing to call out to him. His name is Levi. He is the son of Alphaeus in verse 14. And he is sitting in a tax booth because he is a tax collector. Now, to understand tax collecting back then, we have to understand there are two categories of taxes that were given by Rome to the people in Israel. There were fixed taxes that didn't change, like a poll tax, a census tax, which all men ages 14 to 65 and women 12 to 65 had to pay just simply for being alive. It was a denarius. It was a day's wage. That was the tax and that was fixed. You also had a ground tax, a property tax, which required one-tenth of all of your grain and one-fifth of all of your wine and oil that was produced. But again, it was fixed. Lastly, there was an income tax, which was 1% of your annual income. But again, it was fixed. So that was the first category, fixed taxes. You knew what it was going to be and you knew that you could pay for them. But there was a second category of taxes. These were more custom taxes, what we'd consider duties on goods, Things like roads, using roads, harbors, imported, exported goods, things like that. 
They were supposed to be fixed. It was supposed to be two to 5%, but it would fluctuate and it would go much higher. And that is what Levi is collecting. He is one of those custom tax collectors. He's collecting a tax that is not fixed, but could fluctuate. And he's doing it on Rome's behalf. If you have the old King James version of the Bible, it'll say that he is a publican. Uh, It's kind of a misnomer because there actually weren't Roman publicans from 30 BC onward because Rome didn't want to send their own people into these captive lands and have their own people have to collect taxes. So Julius Caesar said, enough of that. No more Roman publicans. We're actually going to have their own people collect taxes from themselves and bring them to us. And that's why Levi, obviously uh, Leviticus, the book Leviticus, the tribe of Levi, that is a Jewish name. This is a Jewish man who is working on behalf of Rome. And here's what tax collectors would do. And they were notorious for doing it. Rome said, hey, if anybody wants to get rich, we've got a way for you to get rich. You can come to us and you would make bids to Rome on how much you thought you could collect and give to them as a tax collector. So one person would say, I think I will collect a million dollars, let's say, from Capernaum and I'll be able to give it to you. Another person says two million, another person says three million. The highest bidder wins. They will owe Rome $3 million by the end of that calendar year. And Rome said, all we care about is that we get our money that you promised us. But anything above that, it's yours to keep. And you can set whatever price you want and you have our backing. If you remember, we talked earlier in our study of Mark that when Rome took over, they would in essence say, you know, we want you to enjoy your stay as a Roman uh, captive. We want you to enjoy being under our ownership of you. And all we ask is that you do two things. Number one, just pay us taxes or we'll kill you. Number two, uh, just do not fight against us or we'll kill you. Other than that, have your puppet government. Remember, we have King Herod. He's not really a king because the king is the emperor. He's Caesar. But we have King Herod. Have your puppet government. Have your puppet religions. We don't care. Have fun. Just pay us taxes and don't fight against us. So... When Rome says, hey, a greedy Jewish guy that wants to get rich quick and wants to collect taxes for us, you can set whatever price you want of your tax collecting and you have our backing, the Jews would have to pay because they knew if we don't pay taxes, we have broken one of the cardinal rules of being under Rome and we're going to be crucified. And so these tax collectors were notorious for setting the price so high, so unfair. And what made it all the worse was they were um, getting their own countrymen. They were uh, leeching off of their own countrymen. They were doing this to their own people. Jewish people already resented Rome and the heavy tax burden that Rome had placed on them. So they really hated the Jewish people who collaborated with Rome to take advantage of them. This created such a division that once you join this tax collecting group, and by the way, this is kind of one of the first uh, emergences of, a, of an MLM, right? A multi-level marketing scheme, uh, because the chief tax collector, we know one of them in the Bible, uh, Zacchaeus, right? He's a chief tax collector. That's the guy who won the bid, right? That's the guy who said, I'll pay three million to Rome for being able to get all of these funds, all of these taxes from Capernaum. I'll be able to give 
three million to Rome. That person who won the bid was the chief tax collector. And then he would go to other people and say, hey, if you want to help me collect that money, you'll get a cut of it. And then they'd go to people and they'd go to people and they'd go to people. That's who Levi is. Levi is somebody who's working for that chief tax collector who just wants to get rich. And once you join these tax collecting groups, you are regarded as an outcast from society. You are disqualified as a judge or a witness in a court session. You are excommunicated from the synagogues. You are a disgrace to your family and your friends. Tax collecting in Israel was synonymous with corruption. In later Jewish writings, it was said that Jews who became tax collectors ceased to be Jews altogether. That's this man, Levi. Hated, ostracized, outcast, greedy. Remember it was so scandalous when Jesus touched the leper at the end of chapter 1? It is equally as scandalous, if not more so, that he would look at Levi and say, I want you to follow me. Everybody knows how this man is getting rich. This would be like somebody saying, I want the president of Planned Parenthood to follow me. Everybody knows how they're getting rich. And Jesus says, I want him. I want him. I just have to wonder what the disciples are thinking. Remember, we have four disciples at this point. And they're watching all of this. And I just have to wonder, what do they say? Jesus does not seem to be drafting wisely here. Does not seem to be a good general manager. Some of you play fantasy football. You're picking your people to be on your team. He is picking the lowest of the low. He's picking the last person. He has a team filled with kickers. That's all he's doing. Levi was not an obvious and popular choice. My question is, if Jesus has called you, do you think that you were an obvious and popular choice? If we're honest, I think that every once in a while we believe that, or maybe more than every once in a while. And when we believe the lie that we were an obvious and popular choice for Jesus to call, we are the older brother in the prodigal son story. We are the person saying, I've never neglected a command of yours. Of course, you're going to love me. Of course, you're going to give me gifts because look who I am. My family just started reading through 1 Corinthians together for family devotions. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, not many of you were wise, strong, powerful. Not many were chosen that were the cream of the crop. No, the majority were the losers, the outcasts, the riffraff. That's who Jesus is calling. That's Levi's job. Do we know anything more about him? We know one other fascinating detail, and it's hidden here in the label, the son of Alphaeus, but it's explicit for us in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, Levi tells us that he actually is Matthew. Levi and Matthew are the same person. Two different names, same person. We see it in the Bible, Saul, Paul, uh, Peter, Cephas. The only thing that we have a question mark about is why does he have the name Matthew? Was it given to him by his parents, as in this is his Greek name, Matteo? Or it's a possibility, and my preference of how it came about, 
that it was a nickname given to him by Jesus. Remember, that's what Jesus did with Peter. Peter, uh, he gives him a nickname to say, this is who you will become. I think that Jesus says, Levi, come follow me. You're going to be Matthew. You know what the name Matthew means? It means gift of God. I don't think that Levi had felt like a gift to anybody for decades. And Jesus says, you're a gift. For most of his adult life, Matthew would never have seen himself as a gift to any human, much less God. And yet Jesus calls out to him and says, follow me, Levi. I'm going to name you Matthew. Is it any wonder then, if this was a nickname given to Levi, is it any wonder that he calls the gospel that he wrote down the gospel of Matthew, not the gospel of Levi? He's even writing to a Jewish audience. Matthew is one of the most Jewish books. Of all the gospels, as the most quotations from the Old Testament, he's writing as an apologetic to Jewish people. And yet he doesn't use a Jewish name, Levi. He uses Matteo because he has been transformed by the grace of God. Do you see what the grace of God does? It transformed Peter when Peter had fallen away. It transformed Mark when Mark had deserted. It transforms Levi into Matthew. Jesus sought the man that no one wanted and turned him into a trophy of his grace. Centuries ago, a number of workmen were seen dragging a great marble block into the city of Florence, Italy. It had come from a very famous marble quarry and was intended to be made into a statue of a great Old Testament prophet, but it contained imperfections. And when the sculptor, the great sculptor Donatello, saw it, he refused it immediately. So it lay there in a cathedral yard, a useless block of marble. No one wanted it. And then one day, another sculptor caught sight of the flawed block, but as he examined it, there rose in his mind something of the immense beauty of this block of marble. He took it and he resolved to sculpt it. For two years, the artist worked feverishly on this block of marble. And finally, on January 25th, 1504, the greatest artists of the day assembled to see what this man had made of the despised and rejected marble. And as the veil dropped to the floor, the statue was met with a chorus of praise. It was a masterpiece. And the succeeding uh, centuries and generations have confirmed that estimation. Michelangelo's David is one of the greatest works of art that the world has ever known. And it started with a discarded piece of rejected marble. Nobody wanted it. And it was turned into something magnificent. Nobody wanted Levi. And God's grace turned him into a trophy of his amazing grace. Nobody wanted us. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we would walk in. We have been created by his grace to be trophies. A display of his kindness and his mercy. 
This is probably one of the first times in recent memory that Levi can say that he felt seen and wanted, not hated and scorned. Jesus is treating him as a human being and not a piece of dirt like everyone else. And Matthew would live up to his name. He would become a gift of God to God's people, writing down the gospel according to Matthew. Even his father's name, Alphaeus, means to change or renew. Levi is changed by the grace of God. And he's called the son of Alphaeus. And it's very interesting because in the list of the 12 disciples, there is another son of Alphaeus. We're not sure if there are multiple Alphaeuses out there in the world. But if it is the, the same Alphaeus, then that means that Matthew had a brother. Levi had a brother and his name was James, if he is the other son of Alphaeus. And that would mean, if that is true, in the list of the 12 disciples, that half of them were brothers. Peter and Andrew, James and John, James and Levi. Very interesting. We don't know if that's true. We don't know uh, the son of Alphaeus. We don't know if that's the exact Alphaeus. It could be. If it is, then we absolutely know. But it is very interesting to think about Levi being brought into this band of disciples because he's doing his business in Capernaum. And you remember we talked when we first uh, were, were shown Capernaum, when we were first introduced to Capernaum, the main export in Capernaum was fishing. That was the main business. And so my guess is that Peter, Andrew, James, and John had to do business with Levi, paying him money, probably saying, we know you're ripping us off. We know this is a scam and having to give him money anyway. They probably know this man. They probably interacted with him. And as they walk by, they probably spit at his feet. And Jesus says, hey, follow me. And they go, whoa, time out, Jesus. Do you know who you're calling? But the verse doesn't end there. He says, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. I don't know which is crazier, that Jesus calls Levi or that Levi follows immediately. This is the paradigm of discipleship. Everyone who follows Jesus leaves behind their old life of sin and follows Jesus. And that's exactly what Levi is doing. And of all the disciples, he probably would have left behind the most, monetarily speaking. But it doesn't matter to him. His heart is ripe for the grace of God to be given. I wonder if God is calling you today to follow him. Leave behind your sin. Leave behind whatever treasures you're pursuing. Leave behind seeking for satisfaction in anything, good or bad. And follow me. The call of God today and every day never leaves you in the same place that he calls you. You will either believe and follow and go with him, or you will make a terrible choice to stand still and not follow, and in doing so, as he leaves you, you will be falling away. You'll actually be going in the opposite direction. Learn from Levi. Get up and follow immediately. Leave everything behind immediately. And the only way you can say that is if what you are leaving is something that you have loved and enjoyed, if you say Jesus is superior in satisfaction and joy. Levi had been working for Rome and had been working for Herod Antipas, the king of the Jews. But now he will be following the true king of kings. God's grace calls sinful failures 
to follow him. Number two, God's grace invites the morally bankrupt to feast with him. God's grace invites the morally bankrupt to feast with him. This is verses 15 and 16. After Levi follows him, verse 15, it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house. It's hard to determine who's the his house. Is it Jesus's house or is it Levi's house? Good news for us is Luke chapter 5, verse 29 tells us explicitly, Levi invited him over to his house, to Levi's house. This is the natural reflex of a soul that has received such grace to celebrate and to lavish, to celebrate such lavish love. And so he throws a party and Jesus loves to go and feast with him. And there's other people there. Just what would it have been like to have been at this dinner party? What would it be like to eat dinner with Jesus? It says that many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. So we have all of these other uh, riffraff of society, the tax collectors and the sinners, probably a lot of friends of Levi. Just picture Peter, Andrew, James, and John sitting with Jesus and looking around at this band of people, this crowd that Jesus has attracted. Going around the table, you have a drug addict, you have a woman who you know is sleeping around, you have a gang member, you have a murderer, you have a fill in the blank. They're all there, they're all present, and Peter, Andrew, James, and John must be thinking, what did we get ourselves into? <laughs> this is not what we signed up for. All of these people are attracted to Jesus. Why? What attracted these people to Jesus? It's not Jesus' style. It's not Jesus' followers. It's not like they look at Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and they think, we want to be with those guys. It's not even necessarily the way that Jesus taught. It's the magnetic way that he loved them. They want to be with him. They want to be with him. The scene would end so beautifully right there at the end of verse 15. But we find ourselves in verse 16, meeting the Pharisees again. Jesus just is on a collision course with conflict against the religious leaders. The scribes of the Pharisees, verse 16, saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. And they said to his disciples, it's very interesting that they ask his disciples. They don't ask Jesus. I find that fascinating. They have a question that's condemning of Jesus, but instead of going to him to ask, because they know what the answer is going to be, they go to his disciples. They're trying to get his disciples away. And they say, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and with sinners? Sinners is used by the Pharisees, not in the sense of uh, lawbreakers, because at that point, Mark could have written tax collectors and other sinners because the tax collectors were sinners too. Instead, this word is representing a class of people who are, are regarded by the Pharisees as inferior to themselves, moral outcasts. I'm better than they are. When a Pharisee calls someone a sinner, they're calling them the exact opposite of who they are. Pharisee comes from the Hebrew word that means separated one, removed from sin, I will not be a part of that. And so they're completely opposite of everything that I am. 
Remember, the Pharisees had developed 613 commandments, 248 positive, 365 negative, and they claimed to be able to keep all of those and set themselves apart as holy. It's the exact opposite of the sinner in their mind. They're notorious for breaking all of those laws, all of those rules, and not caring. And here they find themselves seeing all of these sinners dining with Jesus. It's easy for us to instantly condemn the Pharisees, but just think with me in your imagination what it would be like. Let's say we're all going out, we're breaking up into, into groups to go around in the neighborhood to knock on doors to share the gospel. And you go to a house in your neighborhood that you know is filled with prostitution and drug addicts. You know this is not a good house. You knock on the door for the purpose of sharing the gospel and Sergio opens the door and he's smiling. He says, hey, it's good to see you. And for a moment, you think something's wrong. You shouldn't be in there. You shouldn't be with those people. Don't associate yourself with those people. And if you are going to be in there, you should be condemning them. Something's off. Something's wrong. That's what's happening here. These Pharisees are looking, saying, something's wrong. Don't associate with these people, Jesus. And that's why I want to ask, just humbly, are we more like the Pharisees than we think we are? If I said, which categories of people do we not want attending CBC? None of us would say anything. That's terrible. We would never say that. We want the gospel to go to everyone. But do we do the really hard work of loving people who are radically different than us? Maybe we too often imagine ourselves to be super saints. We can say like the Pharisees, Lord, thank you that I'm not like them. What kind of sinners are you reluctant to befriend? Who do you think Jesus would be hanging out with today that you personally would not approve of? Maybe you're here and mentally you would say, I'm not a Pharisee in my mind and the way I think about people. But practically you are, functionally you are, because you have zero non-believing friends. To reach the lost, you have to be with the lost. Jesus didn't spend his life in a monastery. He's not, in, he's not tolerating sin. He's being gracious to sinners. He would never compromise with sinners, but he will share a meal with them. That's why he prays in John 17, verse 15, about us. I ask that, Father, you don't take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Let them be in the world, just not of the world. So as we stare at the Pharisees and we desperately desire not to be like them, I just want to give you three challenges, three encouragements that hopefully will keep CBC from ever being like what we're seeing here on display. Number one, we need less fear of contamination and more confidence in Christ's power to cleanse. We need less fear of contamination and more confidence in Christ's power to cleanse. Now, of course, somebody could take this verse and abuse it by saying, now I get to go live a sinful lifestyle for the purpose of missions work. Not true. That's absolutely wrong. I'm not encouraging people who have a drinking problem to go hang out in bars. I'm not encouraging 
I'm not encouraging new believers to go back to their old hangouts with non-Christians where, where they were saved out of. Don't go watch sleazy bad movies and call it incarnational ministry. I'm just being with the people. That's not what I'm saying. But we must not think of relationships with non-believers primarily as dangers, but primarily as opportunities to love, to learn, and to lead them to Jesus. Be confident in that. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Number two, we must speak the truth about sin. But we don't have to speak it constantly wherever sin is present. We have to speak the truth about sin, but we don't have to speak it constantly wherever sin is present. Brothers and sisters, God does not call you to be a nag. No one here should have the spiritual gift of nagging. I remember a friend used to tell me, very boasting in this reality. I have a friend who swears, and every time my friend swears, I grunt so that he knows I don't approve of it. I said, that's not right. God has not called you to be a conscience for other people. Your job is not to give a running commentary on other people's lives. Like you hang out with somebody and then at the end of the night you say, man, I had a great time hanging out with you, but I'd like to itemize four things that I think should have been done better. Everybody knew where Jesus stood. He didn't approve of everything people were doing, obviously. But he always accepted them. He always accepted them. He didn't turn every single encounter into a fight or a confrontation of the way one pastor says it. You can attract more flies with honey than with vinegar. Jesus had an edge, but he didn't have it all the time and he didn't have it with every single person. I just want to ask you, do you pride yourself in having an edge? I think that that's wrong. I think it's wrong to pride yourself in I have an edge. You need to know when to have it, when to stand up, when to confront. You need to pray and ask God to give you wisdom to do that. But you also need to know when not to. Luke chapter 15, verse 1 says, All of the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. People aren't going to listen to you if you become an unsafe place for them to speak about the struggles that they're going through. Jesus is a place where we can come and rest, and share freely. And if we ever start to think that we need to confront every little thing that we see that's wrong in people around us, we will turn CBC into a church filled with Pharisees. We must speak the truth about sin, but we don't have to speak it constantly wherever sin is present. And finally, if we are going to stay humble as a church and not be Pharisees, Number three, we need to know and feel deeply that this church is already filled with tax collectors and sinners. We need to know and feel deeply that this church is already filled with tax collectors and sinners. We're already a bunch of messed up sinners, so what's a few more? Let's invite people. The Pharisees never would have been friends to sinners. They thought of themselves as better. And you will never be a friend to a sinner around you if you think that you are better than they are. 
until you realize the friendship of Jesus, that he invites the morally bankrupt to feast with him, you'll never be a friend the way that God wants you to be. So the Pharisees confront Jesus through the disciples. He shouldn't be doing this. Why is he eating and drinking with the tax collectors and the sinners? And that leads to verse 17, our last point of God's grace on display. Number three, God's grace pursues the spiritually dead to give them life. God's grace pursues the spiritually dead to give them life. God's grace calls sinful failures to follow him. God's grace invites the morally bankrupt to feast with him. And God's grace pursues the spiritually dead to give them life. Jesus responds to the Pharisees' statement in verse 17 with a proverb and a promise. Uh, Hearing this, Jesus said, first, the proverb. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. That's a proverb. That's actually a quotation from one of the Pharisees' own books. It was an ancient commentary on the book of Exodus. And Jesus is quoting that proverb. Those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do. Healthy people aren't in desperate need of a doctor. Sick people are. That's the proverb. Then he says the purpose. I did not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Jesus is saying, I came for sick people. You're asking me, Pharisees, if it's permissible for me to do this. And I want you to know that it was my purpose all along to do this. This is the reason why I came to earth. Have you ever wondered that? Why did Jesus show up? Why did he come to earth? Here's the answer. I came to rescue sick people. I I love that. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Why did Christ come? He came to call the sick to be healed. But here's the catch. Sick people who think that they are well refuse to see the doctor. And Jesus says, I came to spend time with those who know they have a need. There's such irony even in this statement. It says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. It seems like there's two different categories. Like Jesus thinks there's righteous people and there's sinful people. That's not what Jesus is saying here. There's only one category and it's called sinful people. But in that category, there are people who know that they're sinners, own that sin and plead for salvation. And there are people in that category who think that they're not sinners, who think that they're good people, who think they don't need saving. And to those people, Jesus says, I didn't come to call them. I have nothing to say to self-righteous people. Jesus will be no help to you if you are self-righteous. If you think that you have it all together, if you think that you're doing okay, Jesus will be no help to you. And I wonder if said the other way, if you don't glory in who he is and cherish his salvation, I wonder if that's because you're filled with self-righteousness. You're filled with pride. Jesus will never be lovely to you until you see yourself as unlovely. People who say, I have no need. Jesus says, you have no hope. You can wait, you can pray, you can love them until life comes crashing down around them and they realize their desperate need. But unless you own that, Jesus says, I didn't come for you. Brothers and sisters, our condition is so desperate. We are unwell. That's why I said we are spiritually dead. 
And until we have a sense of what it means to be that desperately lost, I'm not sure that we can come to any real sense of who Jesus is and why he came into this world or why we need him at all. Our lostness, our desperation is at the center of all of these things. But the beauty of this statement is to those who know their need and those who desire to follow Jesus, that's the very reason Jesus came. That's the very reason he showed up for you. If you would admit your need, if you would humbly come before him with nothing in you that's deserving of his love. Some of you might be here this morning and you might think there's actually no way that Jesus could love you. You're on the opposite side. We've got Pharisees over here that would say, I don't really need the love of Jesus because I'm awesome. I have righteousness. I'm good. I'm a good person. You have the other side that says, you know what, maybe I am so far gone. There's no way that Jesus would ever want me. I want to follow him, but I don't know if he wants me. I don't know if he'll let me. I don't know if I can. If that's how you feel, or maybe have ever felt, or maybe you know someone who feels that way, I I hope that you would listen to what I'm about to say. There is something that is biblically impossible. Listen to this. Here is something biblically impossible. The Bible would say this is impossible. To want to be a follower of Jesus and to find out that you can't. That's impossible biblically. To want to be a follower of Jesus. To say, I want you. I love you. I want to follow. And Jesus says, no, not you. Look at the forgiveness of Jesus. Look at the kindness of Jesus. Look at the compassion of Jesus. If you say, I want to follow you, Jesus says, you're exactly who I came for. If you would leave behind your old life, if you would leave behind your sin, if you would leave behind anything that you treasure more than him, and you say, I'm done with that. I need cleansing. I need saving. I need life. And I want to follow you. Jesus would say, you're the reason I came. That's his grace and compassion on display. That's why he says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, in this same context, in the parallel passage to this, Matthew records that he then said to the Pharisees, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice because I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners, which is a quotation from Hosea 6, verse 6. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. My friends, are we a compassionate people? Are we known for just uh, oozing love and grace and mercy and kindness? Again, that's what attracted this group of outsiders, outcasts, and riffraff. They were attracted by Jesus's kindness and compassion and grace. Jesus answers in verse 17 with a proverb and a purpose. And it just decimates the Pharisees' question. There's no rebuttal. There's no argument. The conversation is done. The next Lord's Day, there's another confrontation about another issue that the disciples are doing something. The Pharisees say, hey, that's wrong. That shouldn't be happening. This should happen instead. But for our purpose this morning, I think Levi's conversion should remind us of our own conversion. Because the grace that called sinful failures to follow him in this text 
is the same grace that has saved us. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you were a sinful failure that had no hope. And Jesus said, I'm going to call you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm going to give you my perfect obedience. God's grace that invited the morally bankrupt in this passage to feast with him is the same grace that calls you and I to come feast with him now. Find in him more than enough to be satisfied. And the same grace that pursued the spiritually dead in this text is the same grace that is still at work around the world, calling spiritually dead to come to life. Levi's conversion should remind us of our conversion. And the meal that Levi gets to eat with Jesus should draw our attention to a meal that is coming that you and I, if you are a believer, that you will get to eat with Jesus as well. One day we will feast with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb and around that table He'll be filled with the most unlikely dinner guests you could possibly imagine. The riffraff, the outcasts, the wretches, and the sinners. They will all be there. My question is, will you be there? And will you pray with me for more sinners, more tax collectors to come through these doors and be loved by us? that the grace of Jesus would just be lavished upon every single person that walks in, these, in this room. And when they come, pray that they will find a welcome here. Pray that they will find a love that is supernatural, that is not of this world. And pray that we will have the grace to confront sin and to lead them to the cross because the one who hung on that cross for them is an amazingly great friend of sinners. Father, we thank you so much for this display of the grace of Jesus, that he would call Levi and transform him into a gift, that he would call us and lavish grace upon us. God, make us a church that would be so welcoming of even people the world would look at and say, no way, they're in a different category. Make us loving like Jesus. May we be friends to sinners the way that you were to us, the way that you still are to us. Saving, helping, keeping, loving, being with us to the end, never leaving us, never forsaking us, never abandoning us. May we be that kind of friend as best we can be to those around us because we know the friendship we have with the Son of God. Make that so even now as we sing of the friendship that we have in Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.